Hello, hello, good evening, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. As ever, I am your host, Catherine, and we will be talking today about Kamikaze by Beatrice Garland. Not much I can say, to be honest, about her personal context. It is written in character, it's character, there you go. That's it. And one of my students asked me, is it racist because she's writing in character as another ethnicity? I'm going with no. Purely because um, I tried to do NaNoWriMo where you write a novel in a month a few years ago. And half my novel was set in 10th century Japan. And I know I'm not a racist. And also it was generally a very, very bad novel and has never seen the light of day. But we can write in character. We can be someone else. Lots of context though on the concept of being a kamikaze. Ooh, I did I did check this one out a lot. Before I get cracking on the context for Kamikaze by Beatrice Garland, I am gonna warn you, content warning, I'll be having some mentions of suicide. If the idea of someone completing suicide is problematic for you, then I would say like maybe skip next ten minutes or so. Um I will be reminding people when I'm about to say it so it's entirely your call. So who or what is a kamikaze? The name kamikaze means the divine wind. That's a nickname. This group was properly called the special attack unit. During the second world war in particular towards the end where there was a lot of desperation from the Japanese government. There was like a diminishing capacity to even wage war this dominance of the air was going and their industry was being lost it was like we cannot carry on with this so we've got to do something desperate so the kamikaze were essentially missiles that were guided by a pilot who would guide the missile into allied ships especially aircraft carriers to destroy them to cripple them and as a result the pilot would die around 3,800 pilots were killed in this way and it was considered a great honour to be chosen but again problematic problematic I apologise if I get any of this wrong by the way this is pretty much all from books and wiki so please correct me if I get any of this wrong. But the idea of death instead of defeat is an important part of traditional Japanese military culture. Between 1600 and 1870, during the Edo period, something evolved called the Bushido Code, which is analogous to like, the Western idea of chivalry, like virtues by which knights would live their life. Traditionally associated with the samurai or the warrior class within traditional Japanese society, it emphasised things like obedience, duty, being sincere, being loyal and always, always doing the honourable or correct thing. It's also influenced by Shinto and Zen Buddhism, so the very Eastern Buddhist practices. If you faced doing a dishonourable action, the only honourable conclusion would be seppuku, which is ritualised suicide. Stephen Turnbull, in his book Samurai, World of the Warrior, identified that seppuku was considered a noble action because it showed bravery. It would wipe away all the transgressions, all the bad things that you've done in your life. 
it makes sure that your spirit is released after death. So there's no question of your ghost hanging around causing problems. And it enhances your personal reputation. It makes you seem like this super cool and awesome dude, according to this scholar. The narrative in our poem, Kamikaze, is pretty simple. Kamikaze pilot goes off has a change of heart midway in his mission, comes back home, is ignored and shunned by his community for the rest of his life, including his family, and dies in misery. Chirpy one, very chirpy. And there's a bunch of stuff about fish in there too, because he doesn't enjoy a good fish poem. I'm going to give you a really nice reading of it now. As ever, I apologise for my dodgy audio quality. I am by no means a professional. So have a little listen to this. Her father embarked at sunrise with a flask of water, a samurai sword in the cockpit, a shaven head full of powerful incantations and enough fuel for a one-way journey into history. But halfway there, she thought, recounting it later to her children, he must have looked far down at the little fishing boats strung out like bunting on a green-blue translucent sea, and beneath them, arcing in swathes like a huge flag, waved first one way, then the other in a figure of eight, the dark shoals of fishes flashing silver as their bellies swivelled towards the sun, and remembered how he and his brothers, waiting on the shore, built cairns of pearl-grey pebbles to see who's withstood longest the turbulent inrush of breakers bringing their father's boat safe, yes, grandfather's boat, safe to the shore, salt-sodden, awash with cloud-marked mackerel, black crabs, feathery prawns, the loose silver of white bait, and once a tuna, the dark prince, muscular, dangerous. And though he came back, my mother never spoke again in his presence, nor did she meet his eyes. And the neighbours too, they treated him as though he no longer existed. Only we children still chattered and laughed, till gradually we too learned to be silent to live as though he had never returned, that this was no longer the father we loved. And sometimes she said he must have wondered which had been the better way to die. So let's get into this poem now. I've done all the context. Her father embarked at sunrise with a flask of water, a samurai sword in the cockpit, a shaven head full of powerful incantations and enough fuel for a one-way journey into history. Alright, nice easy image to start with. The land of the rising sun is Japan. That's kind of what's depicted on their flag, by the way. White flag, red circle in the middle. The flask of water, okay. Samurai sword linked to his heritage, showing that this is connected to his understanding of the Bushido code. The shaved head thing is religious. You shave your head when you're becoming a monk in many Buddhist faiths or many like 
tenets of Buddhism. The reason I know this is because I used to live in China and my mate was Scottish and kept a shaved head and the amount of times he got asked, is he a religious person? Is he a monk? Um, no, he's just a Scottish dude who keeps a shaved head. It's, it's a crazy one. It's a crazy one. The powerful incantations, incantations are spells. I don't know if it means literal spells, but a belief in this higher power, belief in magic. We've got a list coming in. List gives a sense of things that happen in order or things that are given equal importance. So it depends whether you think the items are being listed as he almost looks round his cockpit. It gives us kind of a sense of intimacy with him because we can see laid out all the important things that he's about to take knowing he will die. It's a nice little juxtaposition, nice little contrast with the one way, this metaphor, the one way journey into history, the simplicity of what he's taking versus this glorious trip into history. So setting, done, first time legit fair enough second stanza abrupt change in tone and it becomes speculative the speaker is the pilot's daughter and she doesn't know what made him change his mind about his mission starting with the aside but halfway there it gives us a little bit of individualism it gives us a bit about how this character this nameless pilot actually related to the other people around him it kind of feels relaxed it almost feels like a story that's been told many many times and she's got this pause where she's like but halfway there thinking she's recounting it later for her children it's it's really nice but it's really weird because the conflict is happening elsewhere it's in the past it's in memory and the setting of this poem I'm assuming is domestic within the speaker's house It's still quite nice at this point, the bunting. So party, it's a simile drawing a a direct contrast. With this party prep, he's still feeling good. The green-blue translucent sea, it's, yeah, it's natural, it's fresh. He's got a good vibe going. Really nice vibe. The thought in she thought is quite ambiguous though. It's should she reveal this to her children even though it kind of has this hypnotic ritualized story. I mean I'm just thinking like some of my dad's stories I've heard so many times that I could probably retell them like in the accent with the intonation. It's like the fact it always has that feel to me. There's this moment of hesitancy. Should I? But the must, the modal verb must, gives it a sense of firmness. Like she's decided that actually this is what's happened. The fish, when I've been teaching this, I've been like, and there's a load of stuff about fish, blah, 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 let's come back to the end. And I've realised while researching this, that I haven't been doing the fish justice. I feel like I should talk about the fishies. Bless them. The figure of eight thing, it could be seen as an infinity symbol, like it's going on forever. But the eight, I know at least in Chinese culture, that's the lucky number. So maybe he's getting these ideas about, well, maybe like the positive way to go is 
back home, the flashing silver on the fishies' bellies. It's like, think about the sabres flashing in Light Brigade. It's this pew moment of glory, like a firework. It's turning towards the sun, turning away. The speculation continues. He must remember how he and his brothers waited on the shore. A cairn is generally like like a pyramid of stones that we would put up to remember someone. So is it that he's remembering someone who's passed away? I mean, is it? Is he thinking about a life lesson that he's got from his family? Just think a bit about the colours before I go on. Pearl grey, green blue translucent, dark shoals, the silver... All the colours she's picked are very evocative and this poem brings up a lot of sensory impressions. Some quite like the subliminal, some quite like under the surface. So like the feathery prawns, it's almost like we can imagine touching like fronds or the salt sodden when that comes up. It's like we can taste the salt. The the inrush of breakers. Again, I don't know if this is stretching it because I do base my notes off like the orthodox revision guides. It could be seen as a representation of like standing up to pressure, standing up to conflict. So these cans of pebbles and the sea is rushing in, determined to destroy them. It's turbulent, it's unpredictable, it's huge, it's like whirling around. Is that him and his family or him standing up to this tide of war, this tide of expectations, this weight of God knows how many generations to do this duty, but he doesn't want to. Like, thinking more about the fish thing, I mean, what do fish do other than swim around, go like blob, 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 eat them little flakes? Well, they get caught. Like, you're in a shoal and you'll get caught in a net. Planes flying in formation seem to me to look a bit like a silver shoal because, like, it's not going to be like one gets caught, they'll all be scooped up. Like, someone's waiting to scoop them up. The fishy thing comes back again. So the white bait, the loose silver of white bait, they're these tiny little fish, maybe like the length of your finger, and they can slip through a net. But the big fat prawn, the big fat prawns, I'm hungry, you can tell I'm recording this at lunchtime. The big fat tuna, dark prince, muscular and dangerous, can get caught. He can get caught because he's huge. But the little fit the little white bait might be able to swim through. They might be able to escape. The thing that gets caught is Dark. The dark and dangerous thing gets caught. I mean, make of that what you will. I mean, the poet knows she's writing more or less in the present day, like modern. So she knows what's going to happen. But is there a hint that the speaker, this character, knows that it's not going to go well for Japan in the war? We don't know. This little aside, yes, grandfather's boat. We've got the dashes for the interruption. And it makes it personal. And that's where my vibe that they've heard this before comes in. Like, is that grandfather's boat? Yes, it is. I mean, there's this interpretation that the kids are worried that something might have happened to their family during the war. It's like, does he get home okay? But it also calls into the question the relationship between the speaker and the children. He says her children, but it's implied that they have not met the kamikaze pilot. So are they grandchildren? I mean, we don't know how long his lifespan is. 
But we've got some nice sibilants coming through in the Yes Grandfather's Boat stanza. The salt sodden wash. It's the whoosh, whoosh, like, that's coming in to represent the waves. We've got listing again, the intimacy, the things that if he's a fisherman, he would have known. And it's this, again, are they things that he's noticing simultaneously? Is he thinking of a day where they caught all these? There is an interpretation that the little white bait are like his innocence and then his experiences in the war are so big and dangerous that it's like foreshadowing that things are gonna get dangerous. The italics are interesting actually because it's not accidental, it's not where like I leave caps lock on and then I write like three pages in caps when I'm trying to do some writing. It indicates a shift in the speaker, it indicates a shift in the focus of the narrative perspective. So if it's focused on the dad, it's in regular non-italicised writing. And if it's focusing on the daughter telling it, it is in italics. It's kind of a poem of many, many tones and shifts and switches. It's optimistic to questioning, to nostalgic, to questioning, to fearful. It's switching all over the place. And it finishes... This, in this really sombre, serious tone. Because the dad does come back home. He does make it. Some of the things I've read have said uh, the thing about the boat coming back is that he crashes his plane into the sea and like washes up on the shore. But there isn't really evidence of that. It's nice. It's a nice idea, but I can't make it work. And though he came back, my mother never spoke to him again in his presence, nor did she meet his eyes and the neighbours too. The pronouns take away his identity. He came back. They can't even mention his name. They. The us and them mentality again. The, even though it's presented quite matter-of-factly, it's shocking in this awful thing that's happening to this man. And it's said, like, so calmly. And that's what makes it shocking. The behaviour is learnt. The daughter learned from the people around. Okay, she learned later because they chatted and laughed. But it was forced upon her is this a sense of regret we there's like a collective blame for whatever happened the enjambment even though we've had these rapid shifts this one moment is flowing through her mind the loved finished on loved for the assigned full stop that's the one thing the speaker wants us to remember is that she did love her dad the conflict where is the conflict where is the power well the conflict as well as being like literally the second world war it's also the conflict between this man and his community as well as this man and like his cultural expectations he's died but he'd already died in the eyes of his family there's regret there's soft sympathy there wasn't a way out of this situation like he knew what would happen some interpretation are also saying that he killed himself but again I don't know the vibe I get is that he lived a long time in this but again that's just that's just my vibe 
couplet at the end. Sometimes he must have wondered which had been the better way to die, summarising the problem at the end. We've got a really consistent structure coming through, regular syllable patterns, and it creates like a bit of nostalgia. But it's also so structured that it comes across as like it's also restricted, representing his choices. The whooshing waves, like time washing over this, it's calm because it's reflecting from this place of distance rather than being involved in the conflict itself. This is the poem that makes us ask a lot of questions. Well, was what the pilot did was right? Well, he felt it was right, but culturally it was wrong but we today might think well yeah he did the right thing he stood up but other people might not they might not like it's really awful the the speaker at the end is questioning did I do the right thing did I not do the right thing did I I don't know I mean Garland has said on record about the kamikazes. They were, of course, the precursors of today's suicide bombers prepared to die for what they believed in. Right, I take a bit of issue with that because, like, far different purposes to their actions. But there have been individuals willing to do that throughout history, even though we tend to think of it as a modern phenomenon. These young men driving lorries into crowds are virtually identical with rather less technology at their disposal. They know they'll die at the end of it. Again, I've got my... The reason I find that problematic is because the kamikazes are taking their actions from within society but someone who is a suicide bomber while they may be in their own community are doing it against society before i talk about might be a bit of a long one by the way so i found some cool stuff online before i talk about friends and partners i just want to share with you some stuff i found about real life men who were actually in this situation so people ask me like is this based on the true life is this an autobiographical poem and i'm like kind of not really i mean it is a character but it's a plausible character the first dude i want to tell you about is called hisao horiyama when he finished his training he's 92 now he says when we finished our training and were given a slip of white paper giving us three options to volunteer out of a strong desire to simply volunteer or to decline when we graduated from army training school the emperor visited our unit on a white horse I thought then this was a sign that he was personally requesting our services I knew that I had no choice but to die for him at the time we believed the emperor and the nation of Japan were one and the same we didn't think too much about dying we were trained to suppress our emotions even if we were to die we knew it was for a worthy cause dying was the ultimate fulfillment of our duty and we were commanded not to return we knew if we returned our lives alive our superiors would be angry I was a disrespectful child and got poor grades at school. I told my father that I was sorry for being such a bad student and for crashing three planes during training exercises. And I was sorry the course of the war seemed to be turning against Japan. I wanted to prove myself to him and that's why I volunteered to join the special attack unit. But my mother was upset. Just before she died, she told me that she would never have forgiven my father if I died in a kamikaze attack. So I'm grateful to the emperor that he stopped the war. This guy was ready to go, but he like didn't actually have the chance to. When I, I couldn't hear the radio announcement very well because of the static, one person started crying loudly. That's when I knew we'd lost the war. I felt bad that I hadn't been able to sacrifice myself for my country. My comrades who had died would be remembered in infinite glory, but I'd missed the chance to die in the same way. I felt like I'd let everyone down. I, that just sums it up so well. The dilemma that this dude was in, like he wanted to do it, but he he didn't want to 
go and he wanted to come home but his family didn't want him home ah there's so many questions but as the narrative goes on you do get the sense that the mother the speaker regrets her actions it's a gorgeous poem it conveys so much like another guy who survived Takahiko Ina he said I felt the blood drain from my face the other pilots and I congratulated each other when the order came through that we were going to attack it sounds strange now as there was nothing to celebrate on the surface we were doing it for our country we made ourselves believe that we'd been chosen to make the sacrifice i just wanted to protect the father and mother i loved and we were all scared we felt sadness about the friends we'd lost during the war we were also trying to envision how we'd rebuild japan like these old men reflecting on this that should have been the chance the speaker had and the mother's acknowledging that was taken away those interviews are sourced from a guardian article from a couple of years ago that i put up on my twitter read it there's a video that goes along with it but it is in Japanese so I couldn't share that with you today but blimey what a poem oh my days kamikaze is always one of my favorite ones all right friends and partners friends and partners what would I put with kamikaze well anything that is a reflection on the war anything that reflects I would say war photographer for being external I would say charge of the light brigade for things being glorious like it just came to mind the flashing saber flashing fish thing the idea that they're out to do something magical and the distance as well that Tennyson achieves from the actual event. I could also make a nice point with Prelude on nature, man versus nature, power of nature, the big scary mountain versus the big old tuna. I, I'm thinking also Mandius as well actually about the power of nature versus man in terms of memory. That one works. Poppies as well in terms of being a female perspective on someone who's been to war they work nicely i'm gonna stop i'm gonna shut up in a minute but let me just plug my pluggables very quickly thank you for making it through my kamikaze exploration so twitter str8talkenglish and straighttalkingenglish.wordpress.com i put something up last night about the context for romeo and juliet so if you are interested in that then take a read it may well be helpful and always drop me a line if you have any questions comments quibbles qualms queries i don't know i've run out of synonyms have a lovely afternoon i will be returning for a discussion of emigre have a lovely day and keep up your revision